Volume 904, Say It Out Loud, Social Networking, for September 12th, 2018. Subscribe for free at broadwaybullet.com and iTunes, and don't miss a single episode. Now available to stream on Spotify. People all over the theater scene in this episode. A Letter to Harvey Milk recently concluded its off-Broadway run, and I am sure it will become a regional staple. Adam Heller and Julia Nitell, the utterly astounding leads of the show, are here to talk about the show and their careers. Next, Raquel Suarez Green recently made her Broadway debut as Carlota in Phantom of the Opera. She discusses her debut and some of the differences between Broadway and opera, her traditional stomping ground. Finally, we talk to the founder of the incredibly popular and influential website, Broadway World. It may be unfathomable now, but there was a time where people didn't take websites all that seriously. Robert Diamond discusses the site's ignominious beginnings to the powerhouse it is now. We're also going to hear two songs from Where the Sky Begins, songwriter Michael Mott's Broadway star-studded album. All this inside, so buckle your seatbelts. I wanted to take a moment to thank everybody for being supporters of the program. And I really urge you to tell your friends. Word of mouth is the best advertising. Um, I'm sorry always for the sometimes erratic schedule, but I do want to remind anybody that I don't make a dime off this. This is strictly a labor of love, a hobby, not a profession. So please tell somebody about all the great interviews and how they can listen for free. I also wanted to take a moment to recommend a fascinating book I just finished. Playing to the Gods, Sarah Bernhardt, Eleanor Aduza, and the Rivalry that Changed Acting Forever by Peter Rader. This book is a wonderful look into the lives of two actresses and a change of acting styles that also is an intriguing look into the history of acting and theater of the late 19th century to the early 20th century. Impeccably researched by the author, this is a must-read for theater enthusiasts. It delves into the mindset of two distinctly unique artists and also explores the beginnings of celebrity culture in the media. There is a wealth of information to satisfy many different areas of interest. Just read it. And tell me, maybe send me an email and let me know if you do. Uh, that's uh, broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. All right, without any further ado, let's jump into the program. <laughs> Up close. A letter to Harvey Milk is currently playing off Broadway, and I've got the two amazing stars from this show, uh, Adam Heller and Julia Nitel, uh, who just blew me away with their performances. Not only is the show very good, but these two are like a masterclass in acting um, in in musical theater. And so I asked if they'd come in and talk together, and lo and behold, asking you receive, shall receive. I've got. Two amazing stars right here. How are you guys doing? Oh, great. You are very kind. <laughs> oh, Thank you so much. <laughs> what a great introduction. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. So um, I, I know both of you very experienced, done a lot, and I was surprised. You look so young, and then I like look at your bio. I'm like, wow, she's done tons. <laughs> I'm still beginning. <laughs> yeah, but you were on tour for as Carol King and Beautiful, I yeah. understand. Yeah, got to tour the country. It was quite an experience. Yeah, and do you have any particular highlights you wanted to mention, Adam, of your previous gigs? Uh, There's a long, long list. Of well, them. yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I've lived in New York for uh, 30 years now, yeah. so it's been a lot, and it's been, you know, in town and out of town, and we He's just keep broad, trucking along. You got a right? lot of Broadway on there, didn't you? Yeah. yeah so. 
Yeah, I'm still trying to figure. I know I've seen you in something else too, and I was I don't think it was on the, the last thing I did was something called "It Should Have Been You." That was a musical David Hyde Pierce directed, uh, and uh, it was just high farce and mm-hmm. a fantastic time with a lot of great people. Yeah. So, so well, I guess first thing on the bill is tell us a little bit about Harvey Milk and how this came together for you guys, and and the short thing let people know why they should come see it or or present it in their own community later on. See, that I love. I love the idea of people getting to take this show into their own hands and, and give it new life and fresh life across the country because it's such an important story But at any time, but especially at this time in our history where, you know, all of these kind of unsavory opinions are, are unearthing themselves in our politics and in, you know, various places, and people don't feel as comfortable to be who they are. And that is, you know, a time in which our play takes place. And so in the 1970s and 80s, gay people in San Francisco were, and across the country and the world, were not accepted. And as someone who grew up as a millennial, I had really no idea Mm -hmm. about any of this because we don't learn it in school. With the title, too, I knew who Harvey Milk was, but definitely this was not what I was expecting with Harvey Milk in the title. And I do think maybe, especially for our listeners in the hinterlands, what I think is so great about this play is that it approaches a very gay-themed storyline in from a heterosexual perspective. And I think, especially as maybe the play goes to middle America, where Mm. there's still a lot of those issues, it allows that audience member to perhaps feel uncomfortable and make the same progress Mm. that your character makes, Mm -hmm. Adam. Absolutely. And and that's, I I think, ultimately the real brilliance of this play is, may, may not be politically correct to whitewash, so to speak, and the thing, but I think this allowing that particular type of audience member to go on the journey with your character. Mm -hmm. Maybe Um, that's their window in. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, Harvey Milk, for those who don't know, was the first openly gay elected official in San Francisco. He was a a supervisor, and uh, he was proud and smart and did many, many great things. You know, uh, certainly fronted a... Uh, a civil rights cause, but he was, I mean, he also got the potholes fixed and and he did all the, the, and helped the elderly and helped women and helped, you know, any minority in San Francisco that didn't feel like they had a voice. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he uh, is a character in our show, but he, he comes in and out and, uh, um, he's really beautifully played by, um, an actor named Michael, Michael Bartoli. Yeah, he's, uh, he's such a good job. Great pal, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I dare anybody who thinks that musical theater isn't real acting to come watch you guys <laughs> perform this show. <laughs> well, it is really a show without yeah. special effects, yeah. and yeah. it's really about people uh, connecting with each other and communicating with yeah. each other. It's an off-Broadway uh, show that uh, keeps it pretty simple and primary in a yeah. way and julie and i have the greatest conversations nightly and it it changes and it's mm-hmm. never the same yeah and it's what makes the journey worth traveling right yeah and we we're very lucky because so many of our scenes are real conversations and there's nothing you know over the top and i don't mean to use that word in a way that makes it sound like that can't be fun, but truly, we do get to just be two people on stage going through a really important time in each of our lives, and we get to rely on each other, and it's very, very cool. So one thing I saw that I definitely would like to bring up, and both of you are outstanding acting, but the, the, there's a certain specificity between the lines I look for in actors, and I really sense the difference, and I, it's definitely something I saw both of you doing. And, and, I, and, and I get this feeling, I mean, Masterful actor, but I also got this sense as I'm watching it. I mean, because so much of the show is the two of you that I'm going, I have a feeling that this was kind of a master class for you as well, Julia, mm-hmm. being able to to work together. And I, I'm wondering, you know, is, is some of that just observing or is there actual like discussion? You know, well, I think she and I have a, a similar, I, without even having discussed it, I don't think we ever did, but I, I think. I have, my hunch is, is that you and I like the same kind of acting. We do. When you don't really see it. <clears throat> yeah. You don't, it, it creeps up on you because it feels like actual conversation. 
and uh, and living in a moment fully uh, and uh, as spontaneous as you can you can make yourself believe that something you've done a hundred times can be. Yes. But I'm also not going to let him distract from the fact that I'm about to compliment him. <laughs> with his, You know, Adam is one of those people in the business who is just a legend. And he has so much experience. And that experience oozes from him in a way that is so unpretentious that it's like, it's staggering to be around. And he is so talented and getting to share the stage with him every night, it keeps me honest, it keeps me accountable, it keeps me guessing, and it is not something that you sometimes ever get to experience in your career. And for me to get to work with someone like him this early, I I thank my lucky stars every day. Wow, that's really kind of you. <laughs> that's true. Uh, but I really, if I can return the compliment, I really did not know you, and I we uh, didn't have any friends who had worked with you, mm. So it was really a bit of a wild card, and uh, but when you came in and we started working, I thought, oh, I, I'm going to learn from this person, oh. and that's what it's always about, you know. So, uh, and we talk about this a little bit, you know. Uh, Julia keeps me honest, and I don't feel like I can be any less than at a hundred percent with you, because otherwise, you know, then where will we be? Same. Right? <laughs> I'm gonna be Chris Farley for a moment. <laughs> and that moment where you, uh, where you like sang to each other, I like that. <laughs> yeah, great. well, us too. That's great. <laughs> um, uh, one thing that surprised me. I'm wondering how often you hear this. When you first, when you, there's a lot of you have a lot of like kind of light singing before you like really first fully like start belting and when that big voice actually ah. finally emerged from you i was like holy cow i was not <laughs> expecting that and, again, and then i'm looking at the carol king oh yeah that makes sense but you don't look like the voice you have i don't know how to put that you know <laughs> thank you <laughs> i mean it's not that you're tiny you know you're you, you know you're but you 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 have this meek look that works really well i yeah. mean I'm and just then tricking just, all of you <laughs> this amazing big voice comes out. Thank you. It's a stunning voice. I wish your listeners could hear. Well, they will be able to hear. Yeah, our our cast album comes out May twenty second, I believe. Yeah, so it will be already out by the time. This, See, this it comes out. It it uh, comes out on Harvey Milk's birthday. On Harvey Milk's I birthday. Think. So. So we're. Go How was recording it. the cast album? It, uh... it was really fun. I unfortunately had a sinus infection. <laughs> so that was, uh, I didn't know until afterwards, yeah. but I, that whole day I was like, I'm not feeling well. But it was really so much fun, and it was my first But your it. technique is so impeccable that yeah. we never hear that. When you're struggling, it's like you've found the way to navigate around that so that it is not. Well, he's you know that Toni Braxton legendarily recorded most of her debut album with a cold? Shut up. Really? So there you, <laughs> you know, sometimes a cold can make you way more pingy, and that is, that is, I mean, I don't really think I had that, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> you have that. We'll be right back to this interview after a brief word from our sponsors. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. Are you looking at majoring in theater for a career as a creative artist? I've created a program at the University of Providence in Montana that is designed to meet your goals. If you want to be an artist, you are an entrepreneur, and our BA in Theater and Business Arts is designed for you to learn essential business skills with classes specifically designed for theater artists. You'll also explore different artistic skills to help you develop your talents, and our productions are very student-driven, with a real focus on students creating their own work, so you know how to do that once you graduate. With a senior creative project of your choice, and a business senior project of developing your own five-year business plan for your career. After graduation, you'll know exactly what your next steps are. UP also has some great programs like a four-year graduation guarantee and a student loan repayment assistance program. If you'd like to find out more, click on our sponsor link at broadwaybullet.com. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, 
and offering a free rehearsal space where I recorded this episode. In April of this year, DGF launched its New Voices program, which brought trained teaching artists into fourth grade classrooms. These artists led the students in the collaborative creation of their own plays, which were then performed for the school by professional actors. It is crucial that young students are given proper access and training in theater to share their stories and learn the power of their own voices. If you'd like to help support DGF in fostering the writers of tomorrow, please visit dgf.org and be sure to follow them on Twitter at dgfound. Now, back to our interview in progress. So, what were some of the most intriguing or different processes? I mean, were there any moments that stood out or, you know, memorable stories of what you discovered rehearsing this play and getting it ready? Um, That's an interesting question. I did a lot of research. I, I did a lot of reading because I am neither gay nor Jewish, and I felt like I had a responsibility to fully understand this character on both of those levels. And I actually grew up in a very Jewish town in New mm-hmm. Jersey and have been to bar, bat, and benai yeah. mitzvahs, more than I can count. So I, you know, I actually knew most of the Yiddish, and I had a kind of more of a grasp on the Jewish aspect than I did on the lesbian aspect. And I, you know, spoke with my godfathers, who have been most one of the most influential relationships in my life since I was born, who've been together for 30 years. And it was so fascinating to hear these stories from them that they've never shared with me, because to me... All the gay people in my life are confident and proud and in happy relationships. And there was never anything that that made me think of struggle when I thought of them. And so to go back in their histories and to go back in the history of America and to read about the struggle was so eye-opening and, and really kind of helped me light a fire under Barbara and make sure that I understood the struggle because I didn't before yeah, now. That's so interesting because our play takes place in 1986, you know, which was the absolute apex mm-hmm. of the AIDS plague. Mm. And uh, so many of us who lived through that time really lived through a massacre yeah. and uh, losing people we loved left and right. And it was terrifying in a way that you just, it's hard to connect with now. And I think that's why people don't talk about it as much as, like my generation doesn't know about it as deeply because it's so painful and it's so tragic that it's almost too recent for people to really even understand it fully, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, and unfortunately this is where you say, like say, I think the play is still very important in certain pockets of the country. There are large portions of the country where your character's attitude as a gay person and your attitude is even being supportive of gays, but kind of, you know, wanting to still keep quiet, you know, about it, is still kind of the norm yeah. for the vast majority. Um, in a lot of ways, I feel like I see in, in my town, which is, I think, small town representative, uh, you know, but other places that actually with the advent of the Internet and be able to be more open and honest, you know, anonymously online has almost, I felt, led to more, you know, willingness to be closed off and not as outspoken or visual in person. Mm. Yes, it's okay in my private life that I keep everything about me a secret because mm. I have online. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think that's still very much out there in, in some communities. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. And hopefully this play getting produced at their community theater company yeah. would, would bring people to the side that they should be on, yeah. you know, in a little more of a digestible way, perhaps. Yeah. We'll see. It is interesting. It's I don't a, think it's a matter of digestible or savory or not savory. It's about... Like I said, again, Theo's going to draw on the liberals. So again, like I said, your yeah, character's not a, a bigot or anything, right. but he still has conflicted feelings. He's outspoken, he's friends with people, but, and he thinks of himself as very open-minded and liberal. But then when confronted with your characters kind of starting to blossom and, and be more out and open, all of a sudden things change. And, and, and that's something I think in smaller communities, there will be a lot of people mm. that just find themselves going, wait a minute, maybe that's... Maybe that's how I am. Maybe I'm not as amazingly supportive as I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, for for Harry, the character that I play, you know, what is a safe way of behaving in the 80s Mm -hmm. uh, was terribly unsafe way to behave uh, in the 40s. So when, and without, you know, 
spoiling it. Uh, there are things you learn in the play uh, as it goes on, secrets that each of them hold, uh, uh, because... That last scene was so powerful. complicated <laughs> reasons, right? well, Yeah, it really is. For both, for both of you, it was there. But what's so lovely about this, uh, and I think what people respond to in this show, is the, the, this intergenerational friendship, mm. uh, this unlikely friendship that, that uh, comes from this writing class that Barbara, Julia's character, teaches. And, uh, and you know, through this series of writing exercises, we get to know each other better and share some of these pains. And, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's sort of an unexpected turn. Uh, we realize how similar we are. And, you know, at first glance, mm -hmm. one wouldn't think that these two characters would be. And it's a nice reminder. So how long has the show been running now? Since... February? Yeah. A, but yeah, so it's It'll, been running quite a while. Already. Yeah. And we run through June 30th. Yeah. So it's, it's a it's pretty great a, run. It's been yeah. a great run. Yeah, we're lucky. Yeah, because, I, you know, I, any actor will tell you that uh, you, what they would really prefer is if friends and family would come like three months into the run. <laughs> when you've really figured it out. Because I would say yes. that right now we're flying pretty good, unburdened yeah. in, uh, and not sort of with uh, an, ourselves on our shoulders, you yeah. know, watching our performance because, you know, it's all pretty quick that yeah. you put these shows up and you're, you're at your best when you're not thinking. Yep. You're all just... Relaxed uh, and grounded. Yeah. yeah. That's where we're at now. But of course, everyone comes in the first four performances. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what are you going to do? Yeah, we Your just parents came it. early, yeah? They, did, they were there for our invited dress. And they loved it, so yeah. now they love it even more. Adam Heller, Julia Nitel, it's been awesome talking to you. I love your show. I really, again, really loved your work in the show, and I, I wish you all the success going forward. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Really good being here. Lovely talking to you. All right, and I just want to remind everybody that if you're interested in hearing more from this interview about the show or any of the other interviews we have on the program, I now also put up the unedited interviews. You can find those at broadwaybullet.com. Just uh, look under the show. So uh, you'll find those. So check out those. Listening Room. Lyricist and composer Michael Mott has released an album, Where the Sky Begins, full of tons of great Broadway singers. And uh, we're going to take a listen to one of those. This is The Left Side of the Moon, sung by Zachary Levi. They say the greatest joy in life is learning how to love And letting in the someone who loves you But there's another side of life that I've been thinking of My someone had a different point of view On the left side of the moon, she left my heart in two. On the left side of the moon, I lost romance. On the left side of the moon, she bit my heart at you. On the left side of the moon, I had no chance. But now it's fine. Cause you came right out of the blue Now you are mine And I never knew what loving could do On the right side of the moon You made my heart rejoice On the right side of the moon You made me grin On the right side of the moon You left no other choice On the right side of the moon You let me in But now it's fine 
because you came right out of the blue now you are mine and i never knew what loving could do on the right side of the moon you made my heart rejoice on the right side of the moon you made me grin on the right side of the moon you left no other choice on the right side of the moon you let me in now let it begin i'm in for the wind you're under my skin oh you're looking so good tonight darling boy do i love you i want to fly you right up to the moon that's right not the left side of course the right the right side of the moon the side of the moon where we're going to love each other all night long that's right baby but baby there's one thing under no circumstances can you forget to pack the scotch that was the left side of the moon sung by Zachary Levi who i have a feeling may be forever known as Shazam Coming up, I just saw the preview. It looks hysterical, a little sense of humor for the DC universe. And that was written by Michael Mott from his album, Where the Sky Begins. Find that on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you listen to music. On the boards. (laughs) In October, Raquel Suarez Green made her Broadway debut as Carlota in Phantom of the Opera. Yes. Coming from the world of opera into the world of musical theater. And uh, she's still playing the role. And I definitely also want to get into it. And has also found a very different entrepreneurial element side that I think is important for people in the arts to develop that I also want to talk about. Great. But uh, we're here to chat uh, before she has the afternoon, before she has to... Sing those high notes. How are you doing? How high E's. High E's and D's. I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> so uh, I guess, well, let's start with first, and then we'll kind of probably go before, you know, and after. But um, sure. how did Phantom of the Opera come about for you? Especially you said you were in the opera world. Yeah. Not, so you know. I, I mean, I went to Manhattan School of Music. I did my master's in professional studies in classical voice. Um, and I had seen Phantom of the Opera in Las Vegas in 2008. And I saw, you know, everybody's like, I want to be Christine, and I want to be Carlotta more than anything, because I thought she was so wonderful. Um, So it had always kind of been my dream to play that role. Um, so a couple of years ago, my manager, you know, wrote you me an email. You don't look like the fading grand dame I know, needs I'm to so be glad. replaced. <laughs> Opera singers come in many sizes and shapes, I guess, yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, and usually, you know, she's Italian, and she's not blonde, but I get a wig, so... Um, so my manager wrote me a couple years ago and said, you know, they're doing auditions for the tour. Are you interested? And I was like, yes, of course. So I auditioned twice. I didn't, you know, I went on for callbacks, but I didn't get it. And um, I thought, all right, well, you know, maybe it's not meant to be. But then last August, they were looking for a Carlotta for Broadway, you know, and I thought, oh, my yeah, God. You can't get the tour. You, oh, my you, God. Well, let's, you know, <laughs> and so I auditioned for it and. I got called back, and then they sent in my tape to Cameron McIntosh and Hal Prince and Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, no big deal. Yeah. And um, I had to anxiously wait for three weeks, but I got, you know, the happy call that um, I was going to be Carlotta for the 30th anniversary. Right. So I did a full-on ugly cry in the street. It was very sexy. <laughs> my manager had to, like, literally calm me down, but it was it was so exciting. So, But it had always been my dream role. How yeah. many actors, you know, would not audition after being turned down for the tour. I, I mean, guess, I think, yeah. that, I think that speaks a lot for you, too. Didn't yeah. you? Hey, didn't get the tour, I'm going to go audition for Broadway. Yeah, well, the thing you is, know. I'm somebody that really has never given up, and if somebody tells me I can't do something, it's like I have to prove mm-hmm. to myself, you know, that I can do it. Um, and, you know, it just, maybe, they, you know, I wasn't what they were looking for for yeah. the tour, but luckily I was for the Broadway show, and that's okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So before this, since this is your Broadway debut, had you done like an eight performance a week schedule no, for this long before? No, the most I had done was six performances a week. I had done um, Figaro 90210, which played at the Duke Theater. <laughs> and it was Marriage of Figaro, yeah. but set, um, you know, in Los the Angeles. The a very good title. Yes, I think that tells yes, you exactly and I, what you're... You know, I was the character who had way too much plastic surgery <laughs> and, you know, I was a mess. But um, I had done six, but never eight. But um, How long did that show yeah, run? Just a month. Yeah. So... Yeah. 
Again, yeah. that's one of the things I think that's almost a, all the training you can get as an actor everywhere, but I don't think there's any way you can really train to do an open run yeah. for eight times a week. Right. Yeah. Were there things that you did to prepare yourself or advice you got or? Yeah. You know, I mean, I study with a wonderful teacher, Joan Later, and she works with, I would say, 90% of the people on Broadway. So I'm so lucky with her because I see her every two weeks just to check in and mm -hmm. to also work on other repertoire just to keep my voice flexible. But I mostly stay quiet during the day. I steam a lot. I keep a really healthy diet. I don't eat dairy. I don't eat meat. Um, I don't drink coffee or alcohol, so I'm like the most exciting person <laughs> to go on a date with. But um, yeah, I just have really learned that, you know, your voice is your instrument, so you've got to take care of it. And in order to sing eight shows a week, yeah. you know, you can't be going out all day and all night and, you know, you just really got to take care of your voice. So it's just kind of like dealing with, you know, having a child that you just mm -hmm. have to kind of babysit all day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> are, are there any, like, I, I mean, I've heard about in certain shows there being, like, vocal rest clauses in contracts. Oh. Is, 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 I don't have that. Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah, and, 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 and I, thought the, well, I thought the Phantom himself was one role that had that, but I know James does a lot of his webcasts and stuff, yeah. so he, he yeah. must not, and he's able to keep that up. But right. I, I do know, I have heard of there being demanding shows where they're like... You have to be quiet? Yeah. Wow. No, I mean, I choose that for myself, but they, no, they don't care. <laughs> as long as I can sing, they're like, do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. And uh, have there been nights where you've gone on where you're like, oh, that wasn't, you know. I mean, I think we I all do, you yeah. know, especially on some of those two show days, you know, at the end of the week, you know, it's like show number eight on a Saturday yeah. night. And, but the thing is, you just, you know, sometimes what feels terrifying to you or you think oh no I hope nobody hears that it's more your own thing mm -hmm. than it's like other people can't really hear it you yeah. know um but yeah I would say literally steaming has saved my life <laughs> so it's like even if I'm feeling kind of you know under the weather or you know getting over cold or whatever usually steaming can can prevent a lot of gunkies on the cords have you missed yeah. any shows yeah I got yeah. really sick the third week that I got into phantom there was like this massive cold going around, and oh, I was, yeah. I could not. How hard is it phonate. to make the decision that I'm not, I'm not going on? Oh, it's horrendous. I mean, yeah. you feel so guilty, and you feel because I mean, it's your dream, it's what you want to do, and you fought your whole life for it, and then this stupid cold, you know, comes along yeah. and kind of takes you out for a week. Um, I'm that person on the subway, you know, when somebody's like, <laughs> <laughs> I will get up and walk away, or you know, purell myself. Um, when I yeah, was, because you can't sing high D's or E's if yeah. you're, you know, if you have laryngitis. So, yeah. yeah. And when I did act, almost like I would swear, like sixty percent of the time after opening weekend, I would come down with the most massive sickness, like without yeah. fail. Like the right. stress just all releases, and all of a sudden, boom! Yeah. I'm like, no, it's terrible. And I, and I still now, I, you know, I don't really act much, but now. Still, at the end of like major projects or something, I will find almost inevitably I get, yeah. I get sick right after the moment. Well, of the worst part is you're so like in such close proximity with the other singers that if yeah. one person has like a sinus infection, it just goes <laughs> through the entire <laughs> cast, which happened about a month ago too. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like a full circle, you know. And then sometimes it goes back to the person it started with. I think that's karma. <laughs> so, what was the biggest surprise or revelation for you? Uh, of your dream of working on Broadway versus actually then being in a Broadway show? Um, like any things that I had thought was yeah. going to happen that didn't happen? Yeah, or, or, or vice versa, weren't expecting and then it was there? Or, you know. um, I mean, my biggest surprise, so I, you know, I come from the world of opera, mm -hmm. and in opera you do three or four shows and then you're done. The <laughs> rehearsal period is like a month, you know, for four shows. Um, so the rehearsal process was so fast which I wasn't expecting, you know, um, we started rehearsals the 16th and then our opening of October and then our opening was on the 30th. So, you know, that was like a very... Do they get the whole cast together for that or are they pretty much just working the new people in? So I went in with Pianji and we rehearsed together and then like a couple days before you actually open, you do it with the whole cast. Um, but the first time I had really done the whole show in a row... Mm -hmm. With the orchestra, with a mic, was in front of an audience. <laughs> so that was that was shocking, but you know what? It worked. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm actually like so glad it happened because you realize you can do more and you're more prepared than you think. Mm -hmm. You know, so I thought, okay, if they trust me, then I trust me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was a surprise. 
Um, also, this ain't their first rodeo. No, <laughs> no, they've actually done it before. Um, and I was glad to go in with somebody else too, you yeah. know, who, hadn't, who was making his Broadway debut and came from the opera world. Um, and fandom is like such a well-oiled machine. I mean, everybody like knows exactly what they're doing. You know, it's like even backstage is choreographed, which again, in opera is like not really a thing. You know, it's kind of like Wah, chaotic, and, <laughs> you know, but here, you know, as soon as I'm done my cadenza and I'm, we're done Hannibal, I walk off, I go downstairs, I go to my dressing room. And if I'm even like a couple minutes late, I run into ballerinas and, you know, so it's like very choreographed. So, but I love it. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it really is a dream come true, and it still continues to be. So, is it as yeah. glamorous as all the aspiring actors out there think it is? Uh, I mean, <laughs> sometimes yes, yeah. sometimes no. I mean, when I'm sitting there with my steamer, like, <laughs> you know, my Mucinex, it's maybe not as glamorous. But no, I, I mean, you know, it's your dream as an yeah. actor or a singer to be performing full time. Mm -hmm. So I would say that you know, and you get to wear these beautiful costumes and gowns and jewelry and. Yeah, so for me it is, it's very glamorous. <laughs> so what what does your downtime consist of? You know, um, kind of heading into your other yeah. uh, other opportunity. What does your downtime consist of? So I um, last year started a company called My Infinite Agenda, and it's a personal vision board planner that allows people to write down their goals next to their daily schedule and to write down what they're grateful for. And, you know, that's something that I've always done my whole life. And... Mm -hmm believe has been a big part of my journey of getting to where I am, um, you know, because I think if you want something or you have goals, it's important to write them down to remind yourself every day. So I started this with my best friend last year. We were lucky enough to get into anthropology as one of the stores. Okay. Um, so that is what I work on during the day so I can be quiet and I can <laughs> type and write to people. And right now we're in production for our 2019 planners <laughs> and stickers and, you know, it's, it's fun. So that's kind of what my downtime Downtime is. It's it's a good distraction too to you know focus on a business side of something and then be able to perform at night. Does it give you some freedom for other opportunities that you might not as well? It sounds like you're probably pretty flexible. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very flexible. I can kind of I can do it whenever I want. Like I even work on it when I come home sometimes. You know, so yeah. <laughs> so um, what have been the biggest challenges getting that off the ground? Um, I mean. No, I've never been in the stationary business. I didn't even know anything about it. So, you know, step one was even finding a manufacturer. You weren't like the Paris Hilton of the stationary world? Yeah, no. I was like, <laughs> where do we even start to print these? So, um, you know, we first had to get a business, like getting a name. Um, we had to get, you know, um, an EIN number. And then you have to get trademarked. And you have to, there are so many steps that you don't think about. We had to find a factory. Our factory's in China. So we had to go to China. Um you know, and then you get to China, nobody speaks English, and you're, you know, it's like, there's so many challenges, but it's really also helped me in the singing world, because it mm -hmm. makes you realize, just go for it, and just, mm -hmm. like, start somewhere, and you'll figure it out as you go along, you know? So, we figured it out, <laughs> you know, we're in year two, and things are going really well, and yeah, it's been really, a really joyful part of my journey. So, now go backing up to before Phantom of the Opera, and stuff. How how are opportunities for uh, you know a performing opera artist these days? You know, um, I think opera is changing. You know, crossover is becoming more and more of a thing. Um, it's hard because there's so many opera singers, even though you wouldn't think yeah. there would be. So that's the like opportunities aren't that great. That's still what like, all the music departments teach. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, exactly. And it's like you know, you get to these auditions, and there's like you know a hundred girls singing the same aria. You know, so the opportunities, I would say, are getting fewer and fewer, which is sad. And a lot of opera companies are losing their funding. So a lot of opera companies are, you know, going down the tubes, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, and I had always been more interested kind of in the crossover side anyways mm -hmm. in musical theater. Um, so for me, Phantom was like a dream come true. You know, it's like I can sing opera in a musical. Brilliant. <laughs> well, wish you best luck at your performance tonight. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. And Thank you for having me. Yeah. Great. Breaking the business. Robert Diamond is the founder, creator of Broadway World. 
And I know it may seem like this has been with us since the beginning of time, but it's now 15 years, which seems to be unfathomable because I don't remember life in theater before Broadway World. (laughs) Neither do I. (laughs) But uh, it all started in May of 2003, so as we're taping this, it's almost 15 years. Yeah. So what was the impetus for getting getting behind and getting this going? (laughs) Uh, It was all Michael Crawford's fault, as I often tell him. Um, Sort of the medium-length version of a very long story is uh, I was working in technical publishing, and on the side of that I was making Michael Crawford's official website, which I had been doing since I was in college uh, when I had a fan website for Michael Crawford, which was the second largest. Uh, and I've always been psychotically competitive, so that was <laughs> totally unacceptable. Uh, and this lovely woman wrote to me, I was in my Syracuse University dorm room, and said, you know, she had been a fan of Michael for multiple decades, she could send me things to scan in, and I would have the biggest Michael Crawford website. <laughs> so I said yes, and she sent 20-something boxes to my wow. Syracuse dorm room. Uh, my roommate loved me. And like a good crazy fan, I spent a few months scanning all this in, and when the website went online... A few weeks later, I got a legal letter from Uh Michael's Charitable Fan Association letting me know that I violated several thousand copyright laws. Um, And some of the photos I had scanned in, they were selling for sick children's charities. Uh So it was like, we're going to sue you and you're going to hell. And I said, instead of suing me, hire me. So instead of going to hell, you went to doing a Broadway website. Right. (laughs) For no money. um, (laughs) So it was better than the alternative. Um, So I was working for this technical publishing company. I started as an intern in high school, and when I graduated college, I was working for them, never fully happy there. It wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, And making Michael's website sort of brought me into the rest of the theater world. And uh, then Michael did a a little-known show called Dance of the Vampires. Um, (laughs) I didn't see it, but I remember when it was playing. Yes, uh, I saw it many times. I took dates there that never went well. and um, (laughs) (laughs) Because of the show, or just... uh... (laughs) That's a different interview. (laughs) Uh, But I wound up making a fan site for Dance of the Vampires, because they didn't have an official website, which is another convoluted Mm -hmm. story. And it was while doing that, I created this whole website that had message boards, it had a login system, it was very technologically advanced, because that was me at the time. And while developing that, I started looking at the other theater sites out there to sort of promote it, and just to, as I was getting involved in the world of theater. And I thought, oh, this one doesn't do this that I'd like it to, and this one doesn't do that. And when the show closed, very quickly thereafter... Um, Sort of while feeling sad about that, I thought, you know, somebody could build a better theater website. Um, so if you went to Broadway World in its first few weeks, the error page was a flying bat. Um, <laughs> and it all sort of grew out of that. Um, so it's, the, the short version is Michael Crawford's fault, but that's the, the longer version. Did you have any idea as you were doing that that it would maybe turn into the, no. the big industry source? No, it was ne- it was never started as a business. It was just yeah. started as like a, a site for people that loved theater that would take better advantage. I thought of technology, um, and it you know the right place, the right time, and maybe a little bit of intelligence and a lot of hard work. It uh, it was a couple of years in before it, it was oh there there could be a business here, and then it was a couple of years after that before yeah. <laughs> okay we're, we're, there is a business here. Um, and you here know, we you got like. Broadway World correspondence all over the U.S., right? We are in uh, 100 markets across the U.S., uh, and in about a week and a half, we'll be announcing we're in 50 countries worldwide. Wow. That's... So we, we put world in our title, and then we had to live up to it. How do you deal with... <laughs> the, how, how do you sift through all the data? <laughs> uh, that? That's a lot of stuff being I work great. in a home office with uh, 12 computer screens. Um, <laughs> And then a window on a lake, but uh, most of the day is spent looking at the 12 computer screens. Uh, we've got a very good team of people, um, and technology is still one of my sort of top two passions in life. Um, so we've built a lot of systems that help us you know, manage our uh, nearly 1,000 contributors in these 150 markets, let us spot trends, let us look at, you know, this story is popular in this region, mm-hmm. await that show is being done in these other places. Um, they're sort of looking from a, a bird's eye view and um, data, data, data. <laughs> so 
What have been some of the trends or, I mean, because, wow, so, I mean, social media and websites and, you know, and Facebook and YouTube and so much has changed in that uh, 15 years that you've been active has been a very uh, tumultuous time in tech. Yeah. But I'm just kind of, what have been some of the biggest challenges that have come up, you know, over the past 15 years in terms of staying on top with what you're doing? Um, we try and stay, you know, skate where the puck is going, the old, you know, the Wayne Gretzky quote. Um, so we're always, I mean, technology is always evolving. Uh, I was in a meeting today looking at virtual reality things and augmented reality things, which may or may not go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but we've always sort of prided ourselves on, you know, we were, were uh, you know, the first on Facebook, the first on Twitter, the first site that was doing video content. Yeah. We had a radio station until we didn't. Um, <laughs> so we, we've always sort of immediately launched first into any new technology, even if we're not doing it well. Um, <laughs> And then hopefully... Well, Bird gets the worm off. I mean, yeah. I mean the, you're not the only tech company with that attitude. That's... I mean, yeah. We were, you know, the in. first version of our apps didn't work. They crashed constantly. My, my mother, who seems to be our number one app user, was always, you know, I can't get the news. It's broken. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, when we started, there was no social media. Um, that came along and then, you know, it's quickly become part of all of our daily lives. Uh, there's challenges there. I mean, it speeds things up. Yeah. Uh, so something can, a story can become bigger faster than it used to, or a controversy can blow up faster mm -hmm. than it used to. Um, but, I mean, we've always wanted to be first out with content, first out with news. Um, so a lot of it has sort of fit well into the, the social media world that's killing us all slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how is, I mean, like I said, you can blow stuff up faster, but, you know, Facebook kind of claims to be a boon right. for everybody. Do you see it that way? We never went all in on Facebook. It's just sort of a personal either preference or fear of mine is, you know, depending solely on a, another person's yeah. platform that you can't control. And, you know, Facebook from day one, you know, it was, and now everybody has to do video, and now everybody has to yeah. do groups. Uh, you know, now you need to do memes and make yeah. everything be shareable and encourage people yeah. to share. And then you, suddenly you can't tell people to share. Yeah. Um, so we never sort of threw money at Facebook as some others in this space did. And we never sort of, you know, pivoted or tried to change everything we were doing to embrace the Facebook audience. Um, I think something that probably makes the theater world unique is, you know, people are coming to Broader World because they love theater. Mm -hmm. So we're not sort of trying to ride a, either a, a Trump wave or an anti-Trump wave yeah. um, or go for politics or go for, you know, so the general of everybody likes recipes or everybody likes dog videos. Um, it's sort of a specific point and a specific passion point. That we're trying to hit through social media, apps, email, this, that, and the other thing. Um, not sort of tied to one specific place. How much does one massive show and the interest around one massive show change your traffic? Let's say uh, perhaps a show that rhymes with Hamilton. <laughs> uh, there, there was a period when it felt like uh, everybody in the theater space was running 14 stories a day with, <laughs> with Hamilton in the headline, um, and every story was hitting because Hamilton was in the headline. That uh, was good for us. I mean, this, this season in particular, when there is no sort of Hamilton-type hit, yeah. uh, our traffic is actually higher than it was. Yeah, that's what it's, I was wondering, if actually these shows influenced traffic or if just theater interest in general was kind of... Pretty steady in the uh, both. Thing. So at the time, okay. all of our traffic was Hamilton, yeah. uh, which was sort of sucking the air out of the room. Uh, this season, when there isn't really a, a Hamilton-type show, uh, it turns out that slightly less interest mm -hmm. in more shows uh, is better for overall traffic. Um, and our traffic is growing, so yeah. hopefully we're you know, doing some things ourselves in there as well as you know, the, the Broadway I mean, world. I feel like you've got to have so much data in there from everything you've been doing that have you looked into, are you, it feels like you could be some sort of a market research group of some sort for, <laughs> I mean, to be able to spot trends, is this? Uh, it's come up, we've tried to do some things with data. Yeah. Uh, our, probably our biggest flop in 15 years was, uh, it was called social networking, uh, which one of the mistakes was I never said it out loud when I was building it and, <laughs> and trademarking it. Uh, social. Social networking. Yeah. So we, we built this whole thing that was like, it was sort of in the early days of Facebook that was yeah. going to be like pages for every actor, pages for every show. Uh, and I created a whole recommendation engine algorithm that said, you know, if you liked 
Idina Menzel, you might also like Anthony Rapp. So it looked at what everybody liked um, and tried to recommend things. Uh, it turned out it was a waste of time to trademark it because <laughs> nobody else ever would want to use the term <laughs> social networking. Uh, and the trademark still hangs on my office wall to remind me. Like, you know, it's like the shame bell in Game of Thrones. Um, and that was sort of the first time we used data. And it turned see, out, if we're not making any mistakes, we're not trying enough things. Right. You know? uh, and that now actually powers other parts of the website. Right. So we use data ourselves. So we know if somebody is coming from a certain market and looking at Broadway content, we're going to recommend different things than if they're you know, from California looking at California theater. That's um, why from Montana, I never see recommendations for good theater. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> Is that my fault or Montana's fault? The, the algorithm's fault, I guess, yes. and Montana. Um, sometimes it's artificial intelligence. Sometimes it's artificial stupidity. Uh, I've been very protective of our users' data, um, and it's not sort of really set up to teach external parties something useful. Uh, from time to time, we'll do surveys for a show. Um, or somebody will ask us a question like, you know, what's, what sort of audience is looking at this particular show? You know, can it help us with our marketing? Uh, but that, that's usually sort of at the, the later end of the process. It's after the show is up and running, um, you know, not part of the creative, the creative process. Is there like a typical audience member or is it really broad? I, I, I feel like there's probably a heavy amount of like younger viewers. On this uh, website, but I'm wondering, that'd be just my guess. It's very broad. Yeah. So, I mean, we get between five and six million people a month. Um, so we get a lot of every kind of people in person. Uh, the message board audience used to skew a little younger. Now it's sort of, I guess people are aging off a bit. Um, some of the people you think are the youngest are older people that are just... Just immature. <laughs> you said that, not me. Yeah. Um, and when we, when we sort of look at content, we look at the different groups of people of, you know, this is, you know, more nostalgic, so it'll reach younger people and teach them something, um, but probably get less views except amongst the older audience, and this appeals to everybody. Um, so we, we, we can sort of identify those different buckets, some of which is obvious. If you're looking at like a SpongeBob or a Mean Girls, yeah. it's, you know, okay, that's an audience. Sometimes it's a hit show like Hamilton that expands to everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, but like when you sit through a, a bad presentation of, of a Broadway show looking for investors and they yeah. say, you know, we have something for everybody, yeah. um, we sort of adhere to that as well. <laughs> Hopefully it's not a bad presentation. Uh, with, all, with all the stuff in the articles you do and you see traffic, are you ever like really surprised that a show is a hit or a flop? Or do you kind of see the writing on the wall earlier than maybe some others? Uh, Sometimes the early writing on the wall is not accurate because things build. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to mention any specific yeah, you know, examples yeah, you don't have to offend anybody. But there are, there are things that I didn't think was a good idea, and I would you know, look at the early article traffic and said, okay, you know, nobody thinks this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it's executed well and audience buzz builds... Well, Hamilton was an awful idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody uh, thought it was ridiculous until it wasn't. <laughs> but almost from the first teases of Hamilton... Yeah. You know, the, the viral video yeah. from the White House and the, the, we had some footage yeah. from Lincoln Center. Um, and then, you know, from the first preview, it was clear it was a huge thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, Bands Visited is, is an example of something that started with, you know, little buzz. It was off-Broadway. The articles weren't getting a large amount of traffic. Um, and now it's, yeah. you know, a, a front-runner for Best Musical. Um, so if we had sort of just looked at the data early on, yeah. we would have ignored it. Uh, but because, you know, data is only one factor in our decision-making, um, there's still art in there, too. And <laughs> yeah, well, well, with that, how many people are, you know, like, I mean, do you have people that are kind of just strictly on the creative end, or is everybody kind of a blend of, like, programmer and theater fan? Uh, nobody, uh, our, or, or are there a lot of people who are just coders and, like, I could care less what I'm working on? No, our coders are sort of a team, some of it's still me at weird hours of the day and night, because... Yeah. Uh, I'm better at coding than sometimes I am at management or editorial or other things. So if I can close myself in a room and build something or tweak something, I feel feel like the old days. <laughs> um, but uh, on on the, the the staff, we have probably about a dozen full time people. Everybody's doing a mix of you know this is what we have to do every day as far as you know what's coming in to our news desk mm -hmm. and what's coming in from all these markets. Um, and then we have sort of weekly and monthly editorial meetings uh, that discuss the more creative things. 
So, I mean, anybody will burn out, myself included, if they're just, you know, posting 100, you know, news stories a day yeah. without ever, you know, picking up the phone and talking to somebody and doing <laughs> follow-ups or doing, a, you know, interviews or things that they like and care about. Um, so we try and mix the two for sanity and for editorial quality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, it was, if the site was, you know, just based on my taste, it would be Michael Crawford World, yeah. um, which I still think is a great idea for a, a secondary website. Uh, but we've always wanted to bring in what everybody loves, which is, you know, varied and different. And the shows that got us all excited about the, the theater world are, you know, vary from person to person. And um, as much of that as you can spread around, it creates a more interesting mix of content. Well, Robert Diamond, it has been a pleasure talking to you about this area. I mean, the, some right, of these huh? things I'd kind of known, some I had no idea about. Um, it's great to see that you're still so happy <laughs> and, and enjoy all this, because I, I, I think last time we met and chat was about like nine or ten years ago. So Yeah, we're, and, we're both, you can't see us, so I can say we're aging well. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> We'll try back in another 10 years. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, thanks so much for coming in, and good luck on on continuing to to provide the world uh, Broadway. Thank you for having me. Listening Room. All right. We're going to take a listen to one more song from Michael Mott's CD, Where the Sky Begins. This one is Her Embrace from In the Light, sung by Josh Young. Sky who knows my story, a memory above, a guide for my tomorrow, a light who shines her love, her radiant beams of distant dreams, her loving glow is all I know. was free. I was everything that I had hoped to be. She was light. Every brilliant beam could waken any night. Then our God extinguished every ray that she would gleam. And I'm only left to dream of her Forever in 
Curtain Call. All right, I want to take one more moment to thank our sponsors before we end the program. They really uh, make this show possible. So check them out if you're interested. There is the Dramatist Guild Foundation, which has tons of resources for playwrights, composers, lyricists, and they're just an all-around wonderful organization filled with wonderful people. So check them out at dgf.org. And also to the University of Providence Theater and Business Arts, uh, the program I created. If you want to learn not only how to be a theater artist, but how to handle yourself in the business of theater, because whether you're an actor or a producer or whatever you may be, it's all a business. And we're here to help you find those problems and work through them and be integrated in the way we run the program. So uh, we're starting uh, applications, I believe, anytime for the 2019 school year. So uh, go to uprovidence.edu or find out more information about the program at broadwaybullet.com. Well, with all that said, I am your host, Michael Gilbo, and we'll be back with Volume 905 before the end of September, promise. So uh, until then, uh, keep thinking about theater. All right. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.